Let's pray as we get into the word. Father God, uh, we thank you for exciting things happening in the life of the church. We thank you for gathering us here today. This is a gift. Father, this is a privilege to be together. And so we do not take it for granted. Speak to us now. Speak powerfully in us now by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I mentioned several heroes of the faith who were impacted by the book of Romans. You may remember my little history tour. We, we heard about Augustine and Martin Luther, and we heard about John Wesley. We also heard about uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, how he preached 372 sermons in the book of Romans. It's a record that I think we should try to beat here at Redeemer. What do you think? I also mentioned my own seminary professor, Dr. Jim Allman. Now, many of us have heard of Augustine. Many of us have heard of Martin Luther. But the name Jim Allman is probably new to you. But like those men who've gone before him, his life was transformed by this letter. While pastoring and teaching at a Bible college, Dr. Allman, he struggled with assurance of salvation. For over four years, he would lay in bed at night awake, thinking about how he could end his life. One day he sat in his office with a gun. Well, thankfully he never pulled the trigger. And do you know what saved him? Well, it, was, it was Romans. It was this reading of Romans. It was God moving through the book of Romans. It's remarkable. It happened late one night and in his own words. For the first time, the truths of Romans crashed into him. He read the book and became convinced that God saves us by grace. He overcame his own pride and a desire to be accepted by God. He wanted others to respect him and to honor him. But it finally clicked that he realized that only God could do this. And if God declares us righteous through Christ, then God really is himself righteous. He realized that his salvation was not dependent upon his own performance, but what Christ had already performed on the cross in his death and resurrection from the dead. And Dr. Allman's heart was changed, and he's never been the same since. Well, if you haven't already flipped to Romans chapter 1, please flip there in your Bibles, or you could find it there in the bulletins. We have the whole of chapter 1 there just to give us some context to this great book. Today we're going to look at verses 2 through 7. Now I ditched my suit today and it feels like the air conditioner's on. The air is blowing and we have some amazing verses today. So let's get at it. If you weren't here last week, just a brief review. We looked at the messenger. We looked at the author of this letter, Paul, and we saw who Paul was. You remember he was Saul of Tarsus. He was the great persecutor of the church. And then we looked at who Paul is. Paul is a servant. Paul is an apostle. And then we looked at what Paul does. Paul preaches and speaks the gospel that he was set apart for this gospel of God. So last week we looked at the messenger, whereas this week we're going to look at the message. And I've entitled this sermon very simply, The Gospel. Four points if you're taking notes today. Point number one, we'll see the promise in verse two. Second, we'll see the message in verses three and four. 
then the scope in verse 5, and finally the reason. We'll see that also in verse 5 all the way to the end in verse 7. Promise, message, scope, and reason. Well, let's first start with the promise. Let me start back in verse 1 just like Joanna did to give us some context. Verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We did all that last week, just one verse. Which, this, this gospel which, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The first thing Paul says about the gospel is that it didn't come out of nowhere. Now, I don't know if you... Uh, have seen many magic shows, or if you're interested in, in magic at all. I'm always fascinated in various magic tricks. I think that while magic is certainly an illusion, I'm always trumped and always surprised when things pop out of nowhere in magic. And I think the trick that most surprises me is when the magician takes off his hat that's been on his head, and somehow he reaches into the depths of the hat and pulls out a live rabbit. And I'm thinking, how in the world does that happen? The rabbit comes out of nowhere. Paul is saying the gospel doesn't just come out of nowhere. The gospel is not an illusion. The gospel is not a surprise. It doesn't come out of nowhere like a rabbit in a magician's hat. Paul says, in fact, not only is it not a surprise, it's not new. It was to be expected. God promised it through the Old Testament prophets. The word prophets there is shorthand for the Old Testament as a whole. And Paul calls the scriptures, he calls the Old Testament holy. He may be using this adjective to highlight the, the scriptures' primacy to a people he had not yet visited. In essence, he's telling them the gospel is of first importance. Pay attention, Romans. Pay attention to what I'm saying. And did you notice Paul calls the prophets his prophets? Paul's not speaking in general of men who could preach. These prophets were used by God in specific ways there in the early church as vehicles of God's words. Even before Christ's time, even hundreds of years before Christ's time, before there was even the church, they spoke of the Christ to come, God's prophets. Paul quotes the Old Testament all throughout this letter to the Romans. We're going to see it over and over again. Pretty soon we're going to see it in chapter 1. We see it in chapters 4, 9, 10, 11. We see it in chapter 15 of Romans. The point, the point is the gospel was promised beforehand. It's not new. Paul's going to point to Genesis and Deuteronomy and Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. He's going to point to Joel. He's going to point to Habakkuk. And take Genesis 3, for example. Just take your mind back towards the very beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve sinned. Right? They, they ate the fruit. They disobeyed God. They, they put themselves in the place of God. And as a result, sin entered into the world. All of us from that point on are born into sin and continue on in sin. Humanity is cursed, but so is the evil one. So is the serpent. God promises that a future seed of Adam and Eve will crush the serpent's 
head. In the process, the serpent will bruise the man's heel. That's talking about the cross. But here we get just all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, a little taste, a little glimpse of the gospel, the promised victory for the Savior. It's often called the proto or first, the proto-evangelion, the first message, the first gospel, the first glimpse of good news in the scriptures all the way back in Genesis 3. And then a few chapters later, we see with Abraham that now a promised seed of Abraham is going to be this savior of the world. We see that this Savior is called the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus himself interprets the Old Testament as, as being about himself. And this is incredible. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus explains that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. In John chapter 5, he says the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about me. And then after Christ's death, Paul, the same author of Romans, he writes a letter to the, called, the first, called First Corinthians, and he says then that according to the Old Testament scriptures, Christ died for the sins of his people and rose from the dead. A promise made by God in the Old Testament is a promise kept by God in the New Testament. Pastor Sam Storms writes, Whereas the gospel may well be good news, it is by no means new news. It certainly is good news, but it's not new. It's not a surprise. Didn't sneak up on us. Doesn't come out of a hat like a rabbit. It was a promise made and a promise kept. So that's point number one. Number two, we're going to look at the message the message itself, this gospel that Paul's been talking about, this gospel of God. Look down to verse 3. It's the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Verses 3 and then in the next verse, verse 4, they consist of a couple unusual expressions. For Paul, combined with the parallelism, which is even stronger in the Greek language, that leads some scholars to believe Paul is quoting an ancient creed or an ancient hymn here. Perhaps Paul is attempting to connect with the Romans. First, in verse 3, the gospel is concerning his son. If you're new to Christianity, Paul's not saying what the pagans believed about gods and fertility and procreation. Jesus was not a son in the same way men throughout history have become sons. No, instead we see a consistent meaning throughout the scriptures of a position of sonship, of authority, of his divinity. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the term is also used metaphorically to refer to the nation of Israel as God's son, Exodus 4, Hosea 11. By extension of this, the king of Israel was uh, included in similar language, Psalm chapter 2. God the Father says of Jesus, you are my son. Jesus is a son and a descendant of David. This is this refers to Jesus coming in the line of David. So Jesus is coming in the seed of Adam and Eve, coming in the seed in the line of Abraham, and now he will come in the line of David. This refers to his, 
his descendant from David. We see that promise throughout the Old Testament. We can look at Isaiah 11. We can look at Jeremiah 23. We can look at even Ezekiel chapter 34. We see that the promises of a Davidic Messiah, 2 Samuel, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Jeremiah, and even Zechariah, which we studied some months ago, shows that this Savior will come in the line of David. God has promised that from this family, from this lineage, that God would provide the ultimate king and the ultimate savior. The one that way back in Genesis chapter 3 pointed to. The one who would crush the serpent's head. The New Testament continues the same title. Jesus is called the son of David 12 times. The point is that Jesus had the ultimate authority as the Messiah. And he would actually take on human flesh and human nature as a descendant of David. Jesus was born. Certainly we talk about this at Christmas. But this is incredible for us to think about all year. That God became man. It's a big part of the gospel, isn't it? That God became man in order to identify with us and later to die for us. He is descended from David according to the flesh. This is the incarnation. The Holy Spirit would bring about a child in Mary's womb. So now we have these contrasting clauses, verse 3 and then verse 4. We have these two titles of Jesus. We see that he is a descendant of David. And in verse 4, we see that he is the Son of God. These certainly speak of Christ's humanity and his deity. He wasn't just a man. Look at verse 4. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was also divine. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus didn't morph between the two natures as if he was human during the week and became divine during the weekend. He also wasn't partially human or partially uh, divine. He wasn't like half human and half divine. He also didn't just take on a human body for three decades and give up that human body. No, he took on human flesh and still has that human flesh. And the human and divine natures, they weren't stirred together like you stir contents in a blender to make a smoothie. No. From the point of his birth on throughout eternity, Jesus took on human flesh and at, and at the same time, he was divine. He was and he is divine. Verse 4, we see that he is the Son of God. That is a title of divinity. Jesus was man according to the flesh, but he was also the Son of God in power according to the Spirit. So do you see those contrasts there in verses 3 and 4? You can see a table of contrasts up on the screen behind me. You see on, on the, the left column there, who was descended. We talked about this. He was descended through the line of David. And then on the other side, we see that he was declared. We'll talk more about that in a moment. We see again from David... And then we see he was to be the son of God in power. And then we see according to the flesh and according to the spirit of holiness. 
Some scholars would claim that Paul is primarily talking about Christ's humanity and his divinity here. And while that's certainly true, and while I've already talked about that, that is true, fully God and fully man. It seems, though, that the focus of the contrast here is even more specific than what we've already talked about, that it's not primarily about his nature, but between his humiliation and his exaltation. Scholar Doug Moo suggests that the flesh versus spirit contrast in Paul usually refers to Christ's life on earth in the incarnation and the period after his resurrection. As Mu argues, the first is the era all the way up to the resurrection, and the second is the era post-resurrection, when a new day has dawned and the work of Christ on the cross and resurrection has been completed and the spirit has come. Therefore, verse 3 is talking about Christ's human nature in the incarnation, his weakness, his identification with us. And then in verse 4, we see his resurrection power. Dead, buried, and on the third day, risen. John Stott, similar to Moo, writes, Paul seems to be talking not mainly about the two natures of Christ, but to the two stages of his ministry, pre-resurrection and post-resurrection, the first frail and the second powerful through the outpoured spirit. Now, one of the keys to understanding this contrast is to consider what Paul meant when he says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. Now, this can't means something new. We know Jesus has always been the Son of God. He wasn't just now becoming the Son of God. We see in Genesis, or sorry, in John chapter 10, Jesus himself taught that he was one with the Father. Two chapters before that, Jesus says that he was alive before Abraham was. He wasn't now becoming the Son of God, but he was becoming the Son of God in power. And that's the key phrase there. He was becoming the Son of God in power. From the incarnation to the resurrection. Writer Christopher Ash says, Paul is saying, now at last, Jesus is crowned. We've been singing that this morning and all hail the power of Jesus' name. That Paul is saying, now at last, Jesus is crowned, changed from the Son of God in weakness to the powerful Son of God through the resurrection. Now the empty tomb... That empty tomb was the grand declaration about the very truth of Christ's divinity. There's no questioning this Savior. So Paul's talking about a new stage of divine exaltation, one that goes from weakness on to strength. Now he's raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Uh, Doug Moo would say Paul's probably referring to the Holy Spirit here. I think that's probably right. The flesh representing the old era that has now passed away and the Spirit representing the new era inaugurated by Christ's resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit. This is the turning point. This is why the resurrection is so key. This is why we're going to end our service today singing about the resurrection and how that is our hope. The resurrection is a central turning place because Jesus was divine before that moment, but his rising from the dead, his rising from the dead was a powerful display, the most powerful display of his divinity. In a sense, the, the, the resurrection declared. The resurrection declared that Jesus was the Son of God, that he is divine, and that the resurrection brought him to the right hand of the Father. 
Now here's a diagram that I found that shows this in visual form. You have the pre-existent Son of God just to remind ourselves that Jesus has always existed from eternity past and will always exist to eternity future. Jesus was there in the beginning, the, our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not created. He is the uncreated one. The Trinity has always existed. So there you have on the left the pre-existent Son of God, and then you have that he was descended from David according to the flesh. So this is a time of incarnation. This is a time of his ministry on earth. And then finally on the right, you see that he is appointed or declared Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit. So different translations will use different words there, declared or appointed we see that he is raised from the dead. He is exalted. In these verses, in these two verses, we see that Christ is human. He is divine. We see his weaknesses. We see his power. We see his sonship to David, his godhood. We see that he's in the flesh. We see that he is exalted. We see that he is human. And we see that he is Savior. All this wrapped up into these two verses. See, Paul's about to show us something. In the, in the most of uh, chapter 1, once we get past the introduction in verse 17, most of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and then most of chapter 3, Paul's going to give us a whole lot of bad news. Okay, this is a section I talked about last week called condemnation. Paul's going to show us that we are all condemned for all have sinned and fall, fallen short of the glory of God. And then Paul's going to say in chapter 6 that the wages do us. What's due us for our sin? What do we deserve because of our sin? Well, he's going to say in verse 23 of chapter 6 that for the wages of sin is death. And so Paul's about to tell us a whole lot of bad news all the way up until chapter 3, verse 21. But I love it how here, before he gets to the bad news, I love it how Paul lays out the good news for us. I love it how right here Paul tells us there's good news. I know I'm going to talk about condemnation, but what I want you to know, Romans, what I want you to know, Redeemer Church, is from the beginning, here is some good news for you to hear. I'm going to talk about condemnation, but hey, there is good news. Jesus is eternal. Jesus came as a man. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. And then at the end of verse 4, it all comes together. Paul says, Jesus is our Lord. And if you are tracking in the verses above, if you followed, you'll notice that this is the first time we see the name Jesus mentioned. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means God saves. He's the one who's come from heaven to earth. He's the one who's come for his people. Now, friend, do you know this message? Do you know this good news? This gospel, this good news, this message, it's not just advice uh, on how to have a better life. In fact, if you follow Christ, you're going to face some hardships, the scriptures say. This is not just good advice to be considered. It's news of what's already happened. It's not self-help. But it's news that our greatest need has been satisfied and secured through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now you may think, Pastor, you don't know my life. You don't know where I have come from. You don't know what I did last year, last month, or just last night. Could God save even me? What's well, a good question? One that Paul is going to answer in the next verses in the next point. Thankfully, 
This is a message for all of us. That's number three. We're going to see the scope. We're going to see the scope of this message. Look at verse five. Through whom, Paul speaking of the resurrected Christ here, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Now notice here, Paul uses the plural pronoun we. We don't know exactly what he means. He may be associating with the other apostles or using what John Stott and other scholars say is an editorial we or the we of apostolic authority or or the we of royal authority. It's when a king or a queen would be speaking in the plural as a display of their authority. In the Greek, the author will sometimes in a letter use the plural instead of the singular. It's through the risen Christ that the Apostle Paul received two things, grace and apostleship. Grace is a concept Paul loves. First, uh, throughout the, the book of Romans, grace comes up at least 24 times. Now, what is grace? We need to know this. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Let me just repeat that. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Salvation, of course, comes to mind. Paul's going to mention some other examples here. And so I thought about my life this week. Many examples come up in my own life. On Wednesday, my wife Gloria and I celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary And Gloria is an example of God's grace to me. I don't deserve her. She's loved me unconditionally. She's taken care of me in my nerve pain and bouts of depression. She has pointed our entire family to Christ in the good times and in the bad times. She has served me and the children. She has labored hard in sharing the gospel for the sake of God's name. My marriage to Gloria, her walking down that aisle 20 years ago, was not something I deserved. It was completely unearned, unmerited, and a gift of grace. And the ministry that we've shared with with, with you all for these past 14 years here in Dubai, many of you since the beginning, it wasn't that we were the most qualified. It wasn't that we were the most gifted. It was God's grace. This church is God's grace. Well, as I mentioned, grace is often used to describe salvation in scriptures, for it is by grace we've been saved through faith. It's a free gift, Ephesians chapter 2. Here, Paul is linking the word with his ministry, just as I did a a moment ago. He sees his apostleship as a grace to him, as an honor, as a gift. He didn't earn it by high scores at apostolic school. He didn't graduate first in his Bible class. He didn't impress Jesus more than the other candidates. Remember, Paul was Saul, the persecutor of the church. There was nothing he did to deserve his apostleship, to deserve his ministry. And remember how Paul called himself. Remember what Paul used to describe himself last week, the very second word in the original text. We have Paul and we have a slave. That's what Paul thought about himself. He was a nothing, and he was, if anything, a slave of Christ. God had graciously called him to serve. And friends, isn't it a privilege to serve God? 
It's an honor to serve him. In whatever ways you serve, even here on Sundays, whether it's from setup to music to bookstall to connections team to the kids upstairs to anything else behind the scenes, to anything else throughout the week, to our community group leaders, to those that are discipling others and meeting with folks and sharing the gospel. This is a privilege. Our youth leaders and our tweens leaders, I could go on and on and on and on. Paul considers his ministry a gift. Now, many of you are serving in full-time ministry. What a gift. But I hope for the rest of us as well that we see maybe We've seen it more recently. Maybe we came here for a job, but more recently we've seen it that God has brought us here to be on mission in our workplace and in our neighborhoods. Dozens of you have registered for the faith and work retreat in Ras al Khaimah at the end of October. You're going on the retreat because you know that God has given you an opportunity to be salt and light in the workplace. While not a capital A apostle like Paul, by God's grace as Christians, we're given a similar privilege to be on mission. So we take our work and we take our lives seriously because you see in the text the scope of the gospel. Paul's mission was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. The gospel is for everybody. It's not just for the Jews or the Gentiles, but Paul... Sure was God's chosen man to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but the gospel was for everyone. This means we share the gospel with everyone. All tribes, all tongues, all nations can come to Christ. No exceptions, no matter how big a sinner you feel you are. Paul's salvation, his dramatic conversion. Fellow Christian, if you're a fellow Christian, your dramatic conversion. There are no boring testimonies. For each and every one of us who follows Christ, that means God took a dead man or a dead woman or a dead child and brought them to life. Paul's life, your life, is a miracle. If God can save Saul of Tarsus, if God can save you, and if God can save me, God can save anyone. And so we share with everyone. Do you remember how I summarized the theme of Romans last week? Let me just take the shortened version and read it to you again. God has welcomed us into the family. God has welcomed us into his family. And so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. This is our privilege and so we share the gospel with our coworkers, with Uber drivers, our cashiers, our next-door neighbors, our flatmates, family members, friends, university students, children, schoolmates, those visiting here on Sundays, those from North America, Central America, South America, those from Europe and Africa, those from the Middle East, those from Asia, those from Australia. And I don't know if there are people living in Antarctica, but from the Eskimos to the end of the earth, we share the gospel with everyone. Everyone can come to faith, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. Oh, friend, God saved us. God has welcomed us in his family, and so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. Isn't that wonderful? Well, there are other things we need to look at here. In verse 6, maybe you're asking the question, or maybe in your community groups you ask, Paul seems to be saying the gospel demands the obedience of faith. 
It's an interesting phrase. We find it here in the beginning in chapter 1. We also find it all the way in chapter 16 of Romans in verse 26. The same exact phraseology. Now, why is this surprising? Why should this be surprising to us? Well, it's because Paul argues more strongly than anyone else, right? That salvation is by faith, that justification is by faith alone. So what does he mean here about obedience? Well, several possible answers. I think we can take a couple of them and bring them together. First, this expression, I think, should be translated, the obedience which consists of faith. Theologian John Murray puts it, the faith which the apostleship was intended to promote was not a quickly fading act of emotion, This is important. But the commitment of wholehearted devotion to Christ and to the truth of his gospel. Our faith is not simply a feeling. Our faith is not simply a feeling, but a devotion to Christ. Now, another explanation commentators suggest is that this phrase is one of source of origin. In fact, another Bible translation writes, the obedience that comes from faith. This points to Abraham, who by faith obeyed. So does this mean believing is the obeying? Or does it mean because we believe, then we obey? Well, John Stott says perhaps these two options shouldn't exclude each other. The proper response to the gospel is indeed by faith alone. And yet living in faith compels us to a lifetime of obedience. Paul isn't interested in some easy believism, but he's interested in a full commitment to Christ. And one way to obey certainly is to believe. It's to have faith. But it's not just that. It goes beyond that. You can't be a Christian and not serve him as Savior and Lord. To be a Christian means your life has changed. Obedience is not a choice. I mentioned Doug Moo already. He's a great scholar in the book of Romans. He says, so faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. They must be distinguished, but they can't be separated. Another teacher has said, Thus Romans, the great epistle of justification by faith is also the great epistle of the obedience to the faith. It's the great epistle of justification by faith, but also the great epistle of obedience of faith. It's interesting that in this letter that's just full of grace, this letter is just dripping with grace, all in its pages, Chapters 1 through 16, full of grace. In the same letter that is full of grace, we'll see that there is an importance of our obedience to Christ as Christians. Even the great reformer, the great champion of justification by faith alone, Martin Luther. Even Martin Luther, during the time of the Reformation in Europe, he wrote this. He says, we are saved by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith, but our faith is never alone. Being a believer certainly doesn't mean we're sinless. We never achieve glorification in this life. We never attain perfect holiness or some state of perfection. We're not sinless, but over time, as a Christian, we should sin less. We should be sanctified. We should grow in holiness. We should enjoy sinless 
We should enjoy sin less. We should enjoy God more. Our desire to please God grows. The goal of living holy lives and the goal of sharing the gospel with others has a specific end to it. In verses 5 through 7, finally, we're going to see the reason for all this. The reason Paul shared the gospel. That's point number four, the reason. Back in verse 5, why does Paul do all this? It's for the sake of his name. In the Greek, it's the very last part of the verse. It serves as the climax. Paul preaches not for his own reputation, but for God's reputation. It's for his name. Another way of saying for the sake of his name would be to say for God's glory. In the ancient Near East, uh, the name, a person's name, was even more important than it is today. Sometimes today, you know, we use names to distinguish John from Henry or from Sarah to Margaret. But in these days, it's summed up your entire person. That's why we see several name changes in the Bible. We see Abram become Abraham. We see Saul become Paul. When lives changed, often names followed. A person's name stood for the whole person. Paul's saying spreading, protecting, and upholding the reputation of Christ was a driving force in everything he did. Paul was disturbed. Paul laid in bed awake at night, disturbed that there were countries, that there were far-off lands that had no access to the gospel, and he so desperately wanted to make it to Spain. That's why he wanted to go, because Christ's name was not being proclaimed in that far-off land. That's the goal. Yes, he wanted men, women, and children saved, for sure. But all of that was to bring God glory, was for the sake of his name. Like Paul, we want every knee to bow. We want every tongue to confess that Christ is king. Why? Well, so that God's name would be great in all the earth. So that others would share in such a great as the salvation as we do. Salvation brings God glory because only God can save us. That's why we share our faith. Redeemer Church, this should be our heartbeat as a church. Yes, we share our faith, but our greatest motivation for mission is not simply obedience. It's not simply our love for the lost, because oftentimes those things wane and our feelings wane and go up and down. Our motivation for mission should be that his glory would be known throughout the earth, that people could enjoy the same Savior that we enjoy. What does this mean? Well, several things. One, our goal at Redeemer Church of Dubai is not for our church's popularity or reputation. Our goal is not so that our church's name would be so great. We thank God for what he's doing here at the church, but we know it's not about our name, but it's about God's name. A second thing, what does this mean about our relationships with other gospel-preaching churches in this land? In Dubai, we, we, we cheer them on. That's what we do. We cheer on other faithful churches here in this city. In Dubai, it means Center Church and ECCD and Covenant Hope and Crossroads and Fellowship Church and Emirates Baptist and other churches that are faithfully preaching the gospel. It means we celebrate them. It means our hearts are warmed when they succeed and see fruit through their faithfulness. It means we pray for them. It means we pray that revival would even break out in their churches that would then impact 
our church and others. We pray for other churches. We, we, we celebrate them and we praise God when we hear that he's using other churches for his name. We link arms together with them. We cry when things go poorly and hard times hit other churches. And we celebrate in the good days. I was thinking about this in the last couple days. Many of you know that I'm a big fan of tennis. I don't know if we have any tennis fans here today, but if you are one, you would know that this last weekend, Jimmy Poon knows this, this last weekend was a very emotional weekend for tennis fans throughout the world. Uh, the great icon of men's tennis, Roger Federer, retired at a London tournament. And so some beautiful, beautiful scenes. It was an emotional time. You would expect that Roger, being an emotional man, would cry, but I think uh, watching other men cry around him was a bit of a surprise. You could find pictures and videos online of him sitting next to his, his great friend and competitor, Rafa Nadal. And you have these images, these videos, and these pictures of these two grown men weeping, crying. You have this striking image at one point of Rafa and Roger holding hands. You can almost see white knuckles there. They're holding each other's hands so tightly. And Roger gave a great speech, about a seven-minute speech. It's beautiful. You could watch it later. But I think Rafa's words impacted me even more. He said that with Roger leaving tennis, he was taking with him a part of himself. That as Roger was retiring from tennis, Rafa was saying, part of me is leaving with him. These two men who have toured together for almost 20 years have been, have been together, have often competed against each other, but from different countries, Switzerland and from Spain. These two men sharing this friendship locked in arms, locked hand to hand, weeping tears as Roger retires. A friend, this should be our relationship with other churches. I was so thankful when earlier this year, Fellowship Church invited me to speak at and to uh, encourage and to help host a going away party for Pastor Jim Burgess. It was a delight and there was tears. Pastor Jim and I moved here the same exact month, way back 14 plus years ago. We have walked alongside each other, different churches in different places but two churches cheering each other on in tears when one leaves, knowing that the, the, the city won't be the same without one. Even later today, Fellowship is helping us and we're using their, their equipment for our family worship night. Oh, friends, we're not about our own church's reputation. We're not about any one church. We're about the greater churches, and we're for the city here in Dubai. So this means we speak well of other churches. We pray for other churches, and we link arms with other gospel-preaching churches. Well, what does it mean for us personally? Well, it means that we care more about Christ's reputation than our own. We go on a faith and work retreat. We do our work with excellence. We share our faith, even if it's scary, we find bridges to the gospel. We stay on mission. We're ready in season, and we're ready out of season. 
to share the hope of Christ. We do this because there's a sweet reality in verse 6. Paul says, including you. He's speaking of the Roman Christians, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul earlier talks about his calling as apostle, but now he uses calling more generally. All believers have been called by God to salvation and ministry. This is wonderful. It's a wonderful truth here. We don't just want to skip this truth that God calls us to be part of his family. And we are called to be saints, Jews and Gentiles. Every single one of us who believes in him, we're called to be saints. Now, this is important here. We've got to get this. That word saint is an uh, often used term in the New Testament as a synonym of Christians in general. The word means to be set apart for God. Scholar Leon Morris urges us to not overlook the plural. In the English, that one letter, S, is really important here. He doesn't say saint. He says saints. We might hear Catholics say St. Peter or St. Mary, but the New Testament never uses the word to describe one believer, but always uses the plural and always uses to speak to and address a group of believers. The point of designated a group saints has nothing to do with their moral achievement. The main point isn't that the Romans were amazing Christians. It was that they were Christians. Let me say that again. The point of them being called saints here isn't that they were amazing Christians. It was that they were simply Christians. This is what this word means here. And it's beautiful that we would be called saints of God. Fellow believer, fellow saint, God has shown you the same grace. Isn't it, ama isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? It should amaze us when we wake up each morning to new morning mercies. Instead of getting death and judgment, we've received life everlasting. The gospel truly is a life-changing message. Well, in closing, let me circle back to where we started. Do you resonate in, maybe even in a small way, with Dr. Allman, my professor, who I shared about in the introduction? Maybe you're struggling with depression or anxious thoughts. You don't know what the future holds. You're in a dark time. Maybe it was challenging even coming here today. Perhaps you feel like an anxious mess. No way out of the, the rat race or the, the hamster wheel that you feel like you're stuck in. Maybe you're overwhelmed with what's next. Well, may, maybe you're not depressed, but how's your heart? What are you hoping in? What are you dreaming about? Where does your mind go when you have nothing else to think about? Is God speaking directly to you today? Let me just say this as clearly as I can. If you don't follow Jesus, you will never truly be happy in this life or in the next. You'll always be doubting, often anxious, anything enjoyable won't be enough. You'll always want the next promotion, the next level of savings, the next this or the next that. And in the next life, you'll be separated from God for eternity, immeasurable suffering. 
Well, maybe you're sitting here and you're paralyzed by your anxiety and the state of your soul like Dr. Allman or Martin Luther before him. If so, you're in good company. It's okay to, to, to feel that way. It's okay to be honest about those feelings, but don't stay in that place. You can do something about your anxieties. You can lay them at the feet of Jesus. You can believe in him and trust in him for salvation. If you have more questions about this, please talk to me afterwards. Talk to any of our Connections team out those doors. Come to the Festival City Food Court. We'd love to talk to you about this sermon, about this text, about this message, the gospel. Because here's what I know for sure. And I say this often because I want you to hear it. And maybe there's someone new here. I want you to know that you are not in this room by accident. Okay, accidents don't happen. You're not here by accident. Maybe you stumbled in from the hotel and you're staying here at the Crown Plaza. Maybe a friend brought you today and this is your first time with us at Redeemer or your first time in a worship service. Or maybe you've been coming for months and months and months, but God, you haven't been woken up yet by this great gospel and the Holy Spirit hasn't opened your eyes. Friend, you're not here by accident. Your visit today was part of God's loving plan for you to hear this message and to be with God's people. And by God's grace, Dr. Allman's heart was open to the good news of Jesus. The same thing can happen to you. Look to Christ. Ask him to open your eyes and heart to believe. He loves to answer that prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to see that Jesus is our only hope. He was killed so we could live. Father, forgive us as we've often looked to the world to fill our hearts when only you can. Would we look to you for our salvation and ministry? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.